This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. For those who are first-time listeners, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions here in this uh, last Tuesday in June. We're glad that you can join us. Um, sometimes people have uh, issues they're facing in their personal life, and they'd like to have biblical counsel or Maybe there's a theological issue they're wrestling with, and uh, they want insight or to a passage of Scripture. So if we can be of help by God's grace, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the uh, local 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live. If you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. However, we do give preference to live callers. With that said, we were gone last week for Vacation Bible School, but a ton of questions have come in, and uh, so we'll do our best to hit as many as these as we can today. Rick, let's go ahead and get started. All right, very good. Pastor Jonathan from Lynchburg, Virginia writes, With inflation on the rise, everyday items in short supply, and the rumblings of a potential march into the events recorded in Revelation ahead of us, many seem to be considering a move toward a prepper mindset. The Christian version of this seems to be the adoption of a homesteading lifestyle. I've heard many Christians who argue that homesteading is more than just insurance against hard times, that it is a a tangible benefit to their families and communities, but will still admit that they like the idea of being more self-reliant if a crisis does come. What does the Bible say about this? Should we apply the principle from the story of Joseph who, quote-unquote, prepped ahead of the famine, or that of the disciples who did not take a, quote, staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, or even two tunics, end quote. Uh, What sort of balance should we strike in these troubling times? Well, it's a fair question. You know, obviously, uh, God's Word teaches that we're to be wise, we're to be good stewards. Uh, There's a lot of certainly doomsday kind of people who will tell you the sky is falling, and, you know, we need to look out and um, stockpile our food and many times weapons and, you know, they have these militia and other such things. And, and sometimes these are Christian people who are involved. Uh, and certainly prepping has become big business. Uh, there's a lot of people who will come in the air and advertise, hey, there may be a crisis and you need to have 25 years of food in stock and this uh, this food will last for 25 years. And so on and so forth. So sadly, many Christians, I think, have adopted this lifestyle in, in varying degrees. And s- sadly to say, sometimes homeschoolers, um, you know, have this uh, mindset. Now, with that said, 
especially with inflation and other things, I think it's good to be a wise steward. And uh, many times um, you can teach your children how to work by having a family garden. Uh, They can see the value of food that farmers uh, produce for us. Most people today, sadly, have little appreciation for those who are in the farming business. And yet we would be lost as a nation. There was a time in American history where 90% of Americans were engaged in some sort of agricultural pursuit. Uh, Now today it's a small percentage of people who grow all the food for us. And so we don't even think about it. Uh, We don't really say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread because we just assume it's going to be there. Well, look, our nation is under judgment right now. It has begun, and whether God judges us in the area of food remains to be seen. Uh, But there are certainly uh, threats in that realm, and I think as God's people, we need to be wise. Uh, Whatever we can do to index against inflation would be a good thing, but neither do we need to be fearful. You know, when fear, uh, that self-centered survivalism, mentality is the motivation for prepping, then it's contrary to the scriptural mandate that we live by faith. And God calls us not to live in fear. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body only, but rather fear God who's able to destroy body and soul in hell. So with that said, there's nothing wrong with being prepared on some level. You say, well, Pastor Carl, do you have any food in storage? No, I don't. I don't, I don't have any food in storage if you're wondering what I've done, except maybe what we bought at the grocery store last week and a few items that you know have hung on the shelf and for whatever reason we haven't used them yet, but they'll be used eventually. That's not to say that you shouldn't prepare for difficult times. We prepare for hurricanes and, you know, the weather could be bad and uh, refrigeration could be lost. And so we set aside some food in those emergency situations. But ultimately, you really can't truly prepare for what's coming. In fact, what is coming, the worst times, the church won't be here. The only people who will be left behind are unbelievers for the great tribulation. The scripture clearly, plainly, dogmatically teaches a pre-tribulational rapture. And if you've been with me in my series on God's prophetic schedule, we've begun to unfold that, and we will continue to unfold it. And if you can be a post-tribulationalist or an amillennialist or something of the like, by the time we're done, then it will tell me you're not really listening to Scripture. Uh, Scripture is plain on some of these issues that we want to say, oh, it's not all that clear. It is a whole lot clearer then maybe people want to make it. So a Christian can be a prepper in the sense that he's, you know, directing maybe his actions for the kingdom of God. Maybe he wants to um, encourage uh, lost people and they have a community garden. He sees it as an opportunity not only to hedge inflation, but also to meet people and build relationships or or if you were to prep um, in some level, you are prepared to share that with other believers and maybe unbelievers as well. Let us do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. But just remember, whatever is not from faith is sin, Romans 14 says. So we live by faith. And the reasons that a Christian becomes involved with uh, doomsday prepping are all determined whether or not they're walking by faith and doing something that's pleasing to the Lord or, or something that's displeasing. So there's extremes, there's balance, 
uh, be prepared for the future, but on the same hand, we're not to live this self-centered, all-consuming, get-ready-for-the-coming economic crash. We need to be sharing the gospel and giving our full focus to the kingdom of God. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and uh, Christian from Savannah writes, how is it possible to get married without having sex before marriage? Also, there are no verses that say you can't have sex until marriage, so why is this taught? Well, there actually are verses. If you're just looking at the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, and you're thinking, well, that only applies to extramarital sex, then you've rationalized uh, your sin, uh, and you're trying to um, justify why you can live immorally. Uh, Let me just give you a verse from the New Testament. I could certainly explain from the Decalogue uh, how adultery is also uh, consistent with premarital sex, but let me just take you to the New Testament, lest you think there's any ambiguity in, in what God has said. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is a reference to uh, God's eternal um, place that he's prepared for you. It will unfold in different ways, and in God's, according to God's timetable, first he'll come and catch up the church. Uh, we will meet the Lord at the judgment of the just. There'll be an evaluation of how we served him as saved people. The judgment of the just is not determined to see if you get into heaven. That's done by grace alone through faith alone, but how God will reward you through eternity. Then after he comes for his saints and he evaluates his saints in heaven, then we come back with him. And one aspect of the kingdom of God is where the Lord literally rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that speaks of Messiah's coming kingdom. Again, with with that said, Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And then the millennial kingdom turns into Christ's eternal kingdom where there's a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem where your loved ones are today who knew the Lord will literally physically come down and sit on a new earth and there we will spend eternity in a place in which righteousness dwells where sin will never be able to enter again. So when we're talking about the kingdom of God, my point is we're talking about salvation. Uh, Inheritance in the kingdom of God is inheriting salvation. It's not just inheriting some reward. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, anyone can be saved because the next verse says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, you will notice in the list, I will highlight two words, porneia and moikeia, neither fornicators nor adulterers. So here, Paul is using it in a very restricted way. Uh, Words find their meaning in context, and so sometimes porneia can refer to any kind of sexual immorality, sometimes to a very signaled, aimed kind of uh, sexuality, uh, immoral sex, and so context is important. And the same is true, of course, in English. 
We use words that take on different meanings depending on the context in which they're used. So pornea refers in this context to premarital sex, moikeia to extramarital sex. They're not the same. Sometimes people want to make them the same, but they're not the same. Uh, Jesus, when he gave the exception clause, so to speak, as people sometimes refer to it in Matthew 19, when he's questioned on the issue of marriage and divorce, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for moikeia, uh, the King James says fornication, and marries another commits moikeia, adultery. So he has two specific things in mind, except for poinea commits moikeia. And of course, just earlier in this gospel, he reminds us that from the heart of man flows fornications, adulteries, and so he has two distinct thoughts in mind. So the Bible is clear that premarital sex is sin. And if this is someone's lifestyle, it just means they haven't been, as described in verse 11, washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus and in the spirit of our God. So you say it's impossible to refrain from premarital sex, not if you're born again. Is it possible for a born-again Christian to commit premarital sex? Of course, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. And so the admonition when it comes to this realm is flee sexual immorality. You don't entertain it. You flee from it. You run from it. You go in the opposite direction from it. Uh, But if someone's lifestyle is that of premarital sex, then it just means they haven't been born again. So when the Bible speaks of a changed life, it's not necessarily speaking of perfection, uh, not until we're glorified. That's when we are made perfect. But justification means you've been declared perfect. Um, And because you've been declared perfect through him who knew no sin, who became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness, dikaios, the justification of God in Christ, Because that's true, then you can be inhabited by the Spirit of God. And when you're inhabited by the Spirit of God, when you're born again, your lifestyle changes. And so there's a new direction that happens in the life. But if you're not willing to admit that your premarital sex is wrong and evil and worthy of God's condemnation, you're not ready to be saved yet. Uh, It's called repentance. You have to change your mind about sin. And unless you're willing to call sin, sin... Uh, you have no need for a Savior. And so if this person who's calling from what state are they calling? Georgia? That is correct. If this person calling from Georgia thinks that you can, oh, you know, it's just that everybody commits premarital sex. Well, not everybody does. And if you think that this can be your lifestyle and you can claim that you're a Christian, then you've been deceived. What I would recommend you do is maybe go online, searchthescriptures.org, which you can download in a phone app and listen to the message, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? I think that would be very, very helpful to you because I think you've called for a bigger reason. And it's not just uh, how do I, re- how, how is it possible to not have premarital sex? Your bigger question is how, do, how is it that someone's really saved? And uh, there's a lot of people who claim to be born again but live a lifestyle of unrighteousness. And that's why Paul says, don't be deceived because it's easy to be deceived, especially in this age. 
in this age where within even evangelical churches you can live however you want and claim to be a good member when in reality you're lost. And that's the people that Jesus is addressing, among others, in Matthew 7, to whom he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. All right, very good. Debbie from Beaufort writes, I'm going to a women's-only conference with Joyce Myers in September. A few Sundays ago, you said you disagreed with her. May I ask with uh, what you disagree with? And this, she is a dynamic speaker, and I really enjoy listening to her. I love listening to you also. Thank you for your response. Well, Joyce My- Myers is a heretic. Um, if you just know a little biblical theology, you'd know that she preaches a different gospel. She preaches what we call the prosperity theology gospel, that God's desires to make you healthy and wealthy, and that's what Jesus came for. She doesn't preach the substitutionary atonement. She preaches that we can become little gods like Kenneth Copeland and other false teachers taught. Is she dynamic? Yes. Just because she's dynamic doesn't mean she's filled with the Spirit. There are many dynamic communicators, secular communicators, who are great speakers, but they're not speaking with the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, some speak with the power of the evil one. Don't you think that the great imitator who uh, presents himself as an angel of light would like to uh, inspire someone who's preaching people not into heaven but into hell? Of course, That's what they're all about. And so she's a member of this word-faith movement. And the word-faith movement is, you know, just heretical. Um, These faith healers uh, like Joel Osteen, which she doesn't necessarily, he doesn't necessarily highlight in his program every week, but that's central. That's part of what fills up his auditorium. But the Joyce Myers and the Benny Hens and the Kenneth Copelands and the T.D. Jakes um, and Creflo Dollar, they're just bilking people for money. And so, oh, she made me feel so good. Let me send her a donation. And you send what they call seed faith money that will multiply your money, that will make you rich. And it's a different Jesus. So... Again, I, I think I know who this person is who's writing, and she just started coming to Community Bible Church. She's not a member, but she's coming from a crummy church, a Baptist church that denies biblical infallibility, that's cooperative Baptist, that teaches women can be pastors and other things. And so you're just untaught. And so I would suggest you go to the discovery class. It's 45 weeks long. Uh, 18 of the 45 weeks right now are available at searchthescriptures.org. We call it their basic discipleship. But most Christians are baby Christians in America. If Billy Graham was right, he put 90% of the Christians in America as babes in Christ. They've never matured. And another occasion, he said 90 to 95%. Um, and it's because they haven't been grounded. And that's why people are so easily deceived when someone preaches another Jesus, like a Joyce Myers and a T.D. Jakes and a Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn, you know, his, um, his nephew, Costi Hinn, worked for him for a decade. And then Costi was listening to someone on TV, and Costi realized he wasn't even saved himself. And he heard the gospel and got genuinely converted. And then after a period of time, he realized he couldn't work for Benny anymore. 
that Benny, like Joyce Myers, and by the way, they're like best friends, were both teaching a false gospel. And so now he has really renounced what he did in the past, unveiled a a number of the inconsistencies and heresies that his own uncle taught. Now he's, of course, rejected by that ministry, like most who end up leaving these people. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, very good. Uh, the next question came into our general mailbox, so you're kind of listed as the, in the third third voice, if you will. So, so, it goes as so how does that work? This is someone who can call in, in during the week and they have a question or what? Well, actually, this person just went to the Community Bible Church okay. website Got and you. went to the info at Community Bible. But uh, if you do have a question you would like to have uh, – posted but don't want to call in, you can go to the searchthescriptures.org website, and at the very top, uh, click on Ask Dr. Brogy a Question, and uh, we'll go ahead and get it, and that'll put you in the queue there. Uh, Anyway, this is Tabitha from Pooler, Georgia, and she says, I have a question for Pastor Carl. I had attended CBC of Beaufort for years until I got married, and we just haven't been able to find anything like it. At the egg hunt you guys had, we talked to him, that's you, for a while about churches and things. We currently live in Pooler, Georgia, and had mentioned to him that we are currently members of a particular church there. However, since speaking to him, we have had a pull on us regarding the children's ministry, and it's not very strong there at that church. However, the teaching for adults is very good. We're wanting to be in Pooler, closer to where we can possibly find some strong teaching for our kids, We've tried the particular church at another location, and we have the kids telling us every week what they learn, unlike our current church. However, we feel that the adult teaching is just standard at this new church. When looking for a church home, uh, is it good to find strong kids and adults uh, not be as strong and to listen to the weekly sermons from our current church together while serving and attending the new church? Hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. So uh, ideally, obviously, you want both to be true, not only a strong pulpit that would feed adults, and really a strong pulpit that feeds adults will feed children. Uh, Once a child reaches the age of five, we have a little booklet that we give. I get to go to big church that equips the parents on how to make that adaptation where at least during one of the hours they come in and worship with their families. Sadly, in a lot of churches today, you know, once the child is, you know, five, well, they go to a children's church. They graduate maybe from a Sunday school class, and they go to a children's church, and that may go through fifth or sixth grade. And now churches offer offer middle school churches, and in some, especially the mega churches, they have even a high school church. And so instead of the family worshiping together, which is what the Bible teaches should happen, the kids are segregated during the worship service. You say, well, how old should a child be? Well, understand, too, nurseries are rather a new phenomenon in the history of the church. Uh, They didn't really begin to kick in until the 1960s, primarily the 70s where churches began to offer nurseries. Prior to that, they had what they called in the 50s and 60s, some in the 40s, a crying room where maybe in the back of the church there was a large window where there was sound piped in and the parents with crying fussy babies would watch through the window. 
And so um, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying I'm opposed to nurseries. Understand that, uh, especially in the culture in that we live in. Not that culture drives biblical decisions, but I do believe there's a point when your children should be in the worship service. And of course, when someone comes to Community Bible Church, if they have an infant or a child and they don't feel comfortable, you know, putting their child in the nursery, especially first timers, and they're investigating and course, they soon find out that we have like super high standards. There's 150 some cameras all the way through the building to protect both the worker and the children. Uh, They're monitored through large screen TVs, people whose job during one hour is to just look at the, the televisions and to make sure everything's safe and both inside and outside. Uh, people are screened, uh, there's background checks, all kinds of things that happened. And they're not just, quote-unquote, babysitters. They're there to train and teach children. But by the time a child is able to hear Paul's admonition in Ephesians 5, children, obey your parents, for this is right. This is the first commandment with a promise. Paul is assuming that children are in the worship service when that letter is being read. And so if a child is old enough to hear and comprehend those words, they're old enough to be in the worship service. That's why we put them in by five. And so we tell parents, by the time your child is five, sure, you can use the Sunday school hour one hour, but the second hour, you need to have your child in there. Well, they don't listen. Well, that's a training problem. And if you wait until they're 10 or 11 or 12 to bring them in, you may have lost them in the day that we live in. And these children that come in at five, and again, we have a booklet that's geared towards helping moms and dads. I get to go to big church so that you graduate them through the process where by the time they're eight, they're listening to the entire message. And children who are raised that way, who come into my office requesting baptism, and not that I always baptize them, sometimes it's two or three appointments, and sometimes over a couple of years, before I baptize them, because they have to, they have to basically be able to lead me to Christ before I baptize them, because I'm not going to baptize a child who has a partial understanding of the gospel, such that when they look back as an adult, they say, I'm not sure I was even saved, or they look back as an adult, and they say, I know I wasn't saved, and, you know, I, I want their baptism to be something that's historical, like a wedding, where they look back and they say, no, a change had taken place in my life, and I was confessing Jesus as Lord. But these children that come into the office at eight and nine who have been in the church for some years, the questions they are asking are profound. It tells me they're listening to the sermons. And so when when a parent is sensitive to the needs of their children, they're going to bring them into the worship service. But yes, you want the Sunday school hour to be strong and healthy for them as well. And so if you're in a good church, you should approach the leadership. Because listen, there's a lot of sad and pathetic Sunday school material that is being offered out there for children. They're just moralizing. They're not really teaching the Bible to the children. And so get behind your pastor. Ask him, hey, could we reconsider maybe the material we're using and get behind the pastor? Look, there are churches now that are introducing evangelical churches, critical race theory into children in grammar school. Critical race theory, I hope you know, has absolutely nothing to do with racism. 
in terms of, oh, you know, look, in fact, it's teaching racism. Uh, it's a form of Marxism. And so there's all kinds of woke theology that is coming into even evangelical churches. And so you need to make sure that there's good, solid, biblically-oriented material. And, of course, it doesn't just stop there where, okay, well, I bring them to Sunday school. No, you're to teach your children when you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk in the way. Uh, That's part of our responsibility. And so a lot of the teaching that takes place is on the fly, so to speak, where you're taking some biblical principle that you're learning because you're filling your heart with the Word of God. These words must first be in your heart, then you teach them to your children, because that's true of you where you're spending time with the Lord. On the fly, you're relating biblical principles to life, but then there's formal times where you open the Scriptures around the table, and it shouldn't be super long, but certainly there might be a time for five minutes before dinner and maybe 15 or 20 minutes before bedtime, and I know some nights won't always unfold like that, but there needs to be a time when you gather as a family, when you pray and and you're instructing the children. And there are families who, look, they drive an hour to come to Community Bible Church, and they pass hundreds of churches, and the parents will tell me, you know, I just have a slice of time in which to raise my children. And sometimes they end up yielding to the desires of their children. You know, especially by the time the kids get into middle and high school, and they say, well, you know, our friends go over here, and and can't we go there? And eventually the parents break down, and then they end up losing their kids because they are in a mediocre church. Look, you have a responsibility. You are to guard the hearts of those children and to raise them up in the things of the Lord. So I feel for you. Uh, in your frustration, but if you're under a strong pulpit, then that would tell me the church that you attended where you say the pulpit is strong, that the pastor then maybe is uninformed. And, you know, I'm very much engaged in what our children are learning. I want it to be great, not just for when my kids are growing up, but for the children who are small and being raised under my shepherding care, and when my grandkids come. And I want a parent to leave with, man, they loved the experience that they had. Can we go back there next week, Dad? And so if there's a strong pulpit, your pastor maybe needs some instruction or some help or some encouragement from you as to what is really happening. And if he's not sure, well, what material is good, have him call me. I'll help him with some curriculums that he could use and implement for the children of that church that will more than moralize, but actually teach the Bible and equip the teachers to teach the Bible to little children. And that is a majorly important role in the local assembly. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and don't forget, if uh, you call during the week and you don't get an answer, you can always leave a message. There's a number to punch there and dictate your question. Make it about 30 seconds long or so, and then we can go ahead and uh, air that later on. Uh, Lachelle from Greenville, Texas writes, I've called in before about leaving my Oneness Pentecostal Church in which my husband and children are attending. My question today is, how do I deal with spiritual abuse in the home, such as name-calling? Uh, being called deceived, bewitched, hell-bound, or lost for my belief in the Trinity. 
these things take place in front of my children in which my 12-year-old son is losing respect for me and doesn't barely want to listen to anything I teach him if it contains uh, words about the Trinity or even uh, extra-biblical standards such as women wearing pants. I'm being talked about in front of my kids as a mother uh, has lost her way, and it's very hurtful. I don't know how to deal with this. My girls believe the Trinity to a degree from what I teach them, but my husband teaches something else. They don't believe in the standards but are not allowed to go against them. They have no Christian freedom. Wow, that's a frustrating situation you're in, but God can meet you there, and he can help you there. Uh, the number one most important thing that you need to be doing is making sure that you are growing in your relationship with the Lord. People ask me, can someone be a oneness Pentecostal? Can someone deny the doctrine of the Trinity and be born again? And the general principle is no. Why? Because when you receive Jesus, the Scripture says you receive the mind of Christ. What does that mean when Paul says that to the Corinthian church? He's reminding you that you have a new capacity to absorb spiritual truth that you didn't have prior to conversion. So you have a T.D. Jakes who denies the Trinity. Uh, That's heresy. And so when he was confronted straight on by a number of born-again believers, he, you know, uh, waffled over it, and he still denies the doctrine of the Trinity. How can you deny the doctrine of the Trinity when it is plainly taught, even in the opening verse of Scripture? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God, Elohim. Elohim is plural. In the beginning, created God, the heavens and the earth. And so there's a plural noun for God, but there's a singular verb. You would compare it in English to um, they is fat. You'd say, well, that's bad English. It would be. And it would appear the first verse is bad Hebrew, except for the fact that God is triune in person. Let us make man in our image. Let us go down and see what's happening. Why? Because he's describing his plural nature. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So unlike a Creflo Dollar who's a oneness Pentecostal who says, well, you know, um, I'm not denying that there's Father, Son, and Spirit, but they don't exist as three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so the Father at times becomes the Son, and then the Son becomes the Father, and the Father becomes the Spirit. And that's not what the Bible teaches. So the most important thing that you can do is to make sure you're growing. And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, in the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as those who suffer unjustly. And so he has just spoken about servants being submissive to their masters, not just those who have good masters, but those who have unreasonable masters. Anybody can serve under a good, gentle, gracious master. It's another thing to serve under an unreasonable master. That's a whole nother situation. And so then he illustrates the need for us to do that by looking at Christ, who is a perfect person, never said anything evil, never did anything sinful, and yet man treated him like garbage, ended up stringing up 
on a cross, which, of course, purchased our salvation. So having said that, in the same way that Jesus uh, dealt with harsh treatment, dealt with uh, being treated for doing what's right, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. And the word one here is actually an evangelistic term. One without a word. How? By the behavior of their wives. How? As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And then he admonishes the women not just to have their behavior as external. And by the way, this is a verse, oneness Pentecostals take out of context. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. So he's saying, oh, you know, here you are, you know, wearing a dress and, uh, I mean, wearing pants when God says you're to put on dresses. Well, look, he's not prohibiting braiding the hair or wearing jewelry any more than he's prohibiting wearing a dress. He's just saying the externals should not be overemphasized to ignoring the internals. And by the way, sometimes you can give on some issues that are non-essential, where you might have the freedom to say, well, I can wear pants as long as they're, you know, not painted on and they're not seductive. I mean, you can wear a dress that's seductive and less than honorable to the Lord. And so um, there are some freedoms that you have that you can give up. And so if you're wearing pants, though they may be chaste, um, is a stumbling block to your being able to show respect to your husband, then wear dresses only. It's not an essential thing. Don't uh, be willing to die and give up a freedom that you have in Christ. That's the argument of first, of Romans chapter 14, that while we have the freedom to do certain things, the kingdom of God is not just eating and drinking, but it's it's righteousness and peace and joy and not causing a person to um, stumble unnecessarily and to be divided with a brother unnecessarily. And so sometimes we can give up a freedom for the sake of unity. And that should certainly be true in your home. And so certainly you cannot give up the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a non-negotiable and your husband is just wrong. But you can respectfully disagree because he's still your head and you would certainly want to do that. And you would not certainly want to speak in a disrespectful way, especially in front of your children, about your husband. And you can just say, well, you know, I understand the scriptures differently. And Christians have for 2,000 years affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity. And so that's what I believe. And you can teach it from the scriptures. And that's your responsibility as their mom. But you want to do it in a respectful way without running your husband down. And when there's some freedoms that you might give up, like if he's bent out of shape with you wearing pants, then just wear a dress. Flex a little bit. Don't create unnecessary division. And you're going to win him, uh, the person who's disobedient to the word, without a word. He's not dismissing the fact that people still need to hear the gospel. So there's some wrong beliefs we might have when we come into the kingdom. And sadly, in oneness Pentecostal churches, because there's such typically rigid legalism, and because, among other things, 
They teach that this salvation that they can even get can be lost, that there tends to be a works righteousness. And so you preach grace, you preach the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus, and you preach um, the truth that the Scripture plainly declares, and hopefully along the way your husband will be converted. So endure uh, patiently. Keep pressing on. Spend some time maybe even in prayer and fasting on occasion for your husband's conversion that he might find the Lord Jesus. Indeed. Yes, indeed. Jonathan from Honeyapath, uh, South Carolina, says, I had been listening to a pastor and at the time didn't realize his Calvinist leanings. And then while listening to him speak, he talked about election according to the Calvinist doctrine. I have a 10-week-old baby, and the doctrine of Calvinism terrifies me in that if my son is not elected, then nothing I can do for him in raising him in a church, praying for him, or living as an example will do anything for him at all. I have been listening to your sermons on Romans 9 and found great comfort, but I still had this sick feeling at the prospect that Calvinism could be true. Most of my research into various verses seems to be that Calvinists interpreting one way non-Calvinists another way, and in the debates, eventually someone just says, you are wrong. I don't have a specific question, but more guidance on how I can be comforted with a son and ask for prayer that my thoughts can be eased and I can realize that Calvinism is not the true doctrine. My, bro- my brother goes to the church you, you pastor, and I was actually there this past Sunday. That was a couple of Sundays ago. And I trust God uses you and will appreciate any guidance you can give. Well, Calvinism is a big subject. It's more than simply uh, the doctrine of election. And again, if uh, you're listening to that series, you might want to supplement it with a series I've done on soteriology. Soto, to save, uh, is the verb from which we have this subject called soteriology. And soteriology deals with the whole subject of salvation. And in that series, I deal with the doctrine of election, and I deal with other issues concerning, um, you know, uh, the whole, what election means, um, who Jesus died for. And again, there are degrees of Calvinism. There are soft Calvinists, moderate Calvinists, hard Calvinists, hyper-Calvinists. And so it just depends in terms of who you are speaking with. But In that series and in the series on Romans, of course, I affirm that every Christian believes in the doctrine of election. We have to because the Bible says we were elected, chosen before the foundation of the world. The question is not does God elect. The question is how does God elect? And so, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says to those, First Peter chapter 1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Uh, and there is the um, word for elect. You could say who are elected. How are they elected? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So we're elected according to foreknowledge. So then the question becomes, what is foreknowledge? Well, it's a compound word, pro-gnosko. Pro, we get our word pre in English. It means before. 
in gnosko, we get our word Gnostic, before knowledge. So according to God's before knowledge. And interestingly, when you look in the New Testament and you see other usages of the word foreknowledge, again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so um, when he speaks of these who are uh, progesis, chosen, um, these who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, other usages of foreknowledge just means prior knowledge. For instance, uh, I'm turning here to the book of Acts, and Paul is giving a discourse here in Acts 26. He's standing before um, King Agrippa, and he says, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, since they have known about me. It's the word Prognosco. In other words, uh, those who before knew me, those who before prognosco, prior knowledge about me for a long time. So there he's just using the word to speak of some prior knowledge that people had about him. And so that's the nature of the word. And so how can God choose us before the foundation of the world? Because God, uh, knowing beforehand, and for instance, Peter in his second letter, We'll write in Second Peter, and I've just turned to chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. There is the word, prognosco. Again, same word we just read from Acts chapter 26. We're here in this context. He is reminding us of Paul and his letters. We actually covered this last Sunday. I didn't comment much on verse 17 but they're talking about those who are untaught and unstable, who distort the scriptures to their own destructions. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that there are some who are untaught and unstable and twist the scriptures to their own destruction, be on your guard. So having this prior knowledge, be on your guard. So God had prior knowledge. Of course, if God didn't know everything, he wouldn't be God. So in eternity past, God, knowing how men would respond to general revelation, knowing how men would respond to specific revelation, namely the gospel. General revelation is the information that God has given to all men through creation, through conscience, um, through um, his care for people. And when a person responds to general revelation, then they can ultimately be given specific revelation. That's how God works. Um, He looks at what you will respond to, and if you respond to what he has given you, many times he will give you even more. And so with that said, God in eternity past knew how men would respond to the work of the Spirit, those who would respond in faith. Now understand, I'm not saying that you come to Christ on your own. That's just not true. The Scripture is very, very clear that you come to Christ by the work of the Spirit of God, that the initiative begins with God and never with man. With that said, um, it is plain that God knew how you would respond, and that's why he could record your name in eternity past. So it's a view of election. It's just a different view. I hope you don't agree with all that Calvin says. Let me read something to you that Calvin says. I just pulled it out of a sermon I preached in the Revelation. He said this concerning the Jews. It's a, it's a, it's a little um, 
discourse he gave. The title of it is called A Response to Questions and Objections of a Certain Jew. Then he said, quote, The Jews, rotten and unbending, obstinance deserves that they be oppressed without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. John Calvin. To me, I find that quotation disgusting. Um, But that was influenced because one aspect of Calvinism is their eschatology. Eschatos, last things. So eschatology is the study of the last things, or um, we often speak of Bible prophecy in the end of times. That's what eschatology deals with. Well, Calvin's eschatology was formatted by the fact that he believed that there was no future for the Jews. He just called them as a people that should be oppressed without measure, that they that their obstinance deserves that, that they should be shown no mercy, no pity. Um, he had somewhat of a very anti-Semitic view towards how the Jewish people should be treated because he believed the church had replaced Israel. So there's a lot to Calvinism, and again, it depends on the degree of Calvinism. Most Calvinists would say, well, if it's their little baby that dies, my little baby goes to heaven because he's under the covenant. And that's why typically they also baptize a true Calvinist, not an adult, but an infant. Uh, But lay that aside, non-elect babies, meaning the babies of unbelievers, they die and go to hell. And then you have some Calvinists who say all babies before they uh, exercise genuine faith go to hell. Well, uh, I, again, offer a course at Community Bible Church. It's called the Discovery Class. And eventually, by God's grace, every handout will be online with a video presentation. But one of the questions that we address in the section of the course called the 10 Most Commonly Asked Questions is what happens to little children when they die? And the Bible teaches they go to heaven, both believing and unbelieving children. How do we know that? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. And the Lord Jesus uses illustrations where he likens little children to the kingdom of God, to being members of his coming kingdom. How can he do that? Because he doesn't hold them responsible for something they cannot understand. You say, well, what's the age of accountability? The Bible doesn't give one. It's better to speak of a point of accountability because the age might be different for different young people depending on how they progress mentally and otherwise. So with that said, little babies go to heaven. And again, that handout would be useful for you to study. You can be assured that your little baby, if that child were to perish, will be at home with the Lord. But you also need to be assured of the truth that, indeed, they will become accountable someday, that while God has children, he has no grandchildren, but that God didn't give you a baby so that they, oh, they might get saved, they might not get saved, so that they can serve in the places of, 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 of outer darkness. So God gave you a baby to raise in the admonition of the Lord that they might know Jesus as Lord. And so the most important thing that you can do as a parent is walk with God. And many evangelical parents are losing their kids because they're really not walking with God. They hear a sermon on Sunday morning, on Sunday night, they go home and they watch trash. 
and their minds are polluted and they lose the ability for discernment and especially in this evil day to guard their children from the evil that is so prolific everywhere you look Um, and so someone else is capturing the hearts of their children and then they wonder why when they become teenagers or get off to college that the so-called profession they made was just external but not from the heart. And so these are important days in which we live in. And so, again, I would direct this young mother to my discovery class and the question, what happens to little children when they die? Because I, we spent a couple weeks on it in the discovery class, a few hours, and walking through the various scriptures, and I've just answered it here in the last five minutes. So I hope that will help. Mm, all right, very good. We've only got two and a half minutes, so I'm going to skip to the next question because I don't think you've got enough time to answer this one. So Clee would like to know, I've got a friend of mine who's been talking about Mark De Jesus. I looked him up on the Internet, and he appears to be a prosperity health and wellness peddler. Just wanted your opinion. Thank you for any input before I sit down and talk with my friend. Yeah, so this is what I would recommend you do because, you see, there are Christians who can be born again, who can end up embracing embracing some false truth with the true gospel. And so I offer a course. It's called the Spiritual Gifts Course. And one of the appendices to that course is on prosperity theology. So if you go to searchthescriptures.org, there's an extensive handout that goes with it. If you have trouble getting the handout, you can just call Search the Scriptures at the 877 toll free number, which is 877 STS 7478. And uh, you can get the handout if you can't get it yourself online. But I would suggest that you really fully understand what prosperity theology teaches. And so I walk through the passages that they use out of context. And we look at each of those passages in their context to see the distorted, warped view they have in prosperity theology. It might be your friend's not even saved. Um, I don't know. But you want to be able to help him by responding clearly and articulately and biblically, letting Scripture define Scripture so that when they quote, well, by his stripes we're healed, and God just wants you to have faith so you can be healed today, or he wants you to be wealthy, and, you know, look at this carefully. And so it's not for the faint and weary. I think I spent a couple of weeks on it when I taught that handout And I think you'll find it very useful and helpful. Well, we're out of time for today. If you are listening locally, you're within a 50-mile radius of Beaufort County. We invite you to Community Bible Church this Sunday at 915 or 11. If you live out in Hampton County, we have a new church plant in Grays, uh, South Carolina, which you can also find online. It's a live stream campus with live music. Same in Graniteville in Aiken County. If you have friends in Graniteville who are looking for a health, healthy church, they might want to consider that as well. God bless you as you walk with Christ. Mm-hmm.